When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Nick Kroll, and you are listening to the Pantheon Network. Hey, it's Lance, your host of yesterday's concert. Before we get this episode started, I want to take 25 seconds to tell you about my other show, Jam Journals. Jam Journals is a podcast that takes you on a journey through music history, featuring live performances from some of the most iconic concerts of all time. Each episode recounts a different concert experience through a dramatic narrative that brings the memories to life with vivid detail and emotion. Join us as we take a trip down memory lane of some of the most unforgettable concerts in recent history. Jam Journals is available everywhere you get podcasts. Yesterday's concert is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Welcome to Yesterday's Concert, a podcast that celebrates live music. My name is Lance Ingram, and in this episode we talk to Eli Winter. Eli is an independent multi-instrumentalist and guitarist and virtuoso. We discuss his essay, Labor of Love, Touring as an Independent Musician. Grab your earplugs for some wild road stories. So I'm here with Eli Winter. An amazing guitar player, musician, artist, all in competence. Like, he's all of them. Uh, Eli, how are you today, man? Hey, thanks for asking, and thanks for having me. I'm doing okay. Good. And so we were talking before we started recording. You're not on the road right now, but you're back at home. Is that correct? Yes, yes, in Chicago. So uh, when do you when do you go back on tour? I have tour plans in the works for September and October and November. Nice. I hope you uh, venture down south, maybe to the Memphis area. I would love to see you. Just putting that little bug out there for you. <laughs> when you do, I will I will be in attendance, that's for sure. Hey, thanks. So to get started, I think it's probably best we do a couple icebreakers just to have a little fun, a little lightheartedness for the conversation. So my first question for you is you've played a host of different rooms. What's the most unique venue that you've ever played in? Hmm, I mean, the, I think of a few. Um they might they might not be unique venues, but they might be more situations. Yeah, I mean, I mean there, there are several things actually. You know, I'm from Houston, Texas, and the very first show I ever played was at a venue called Super Happy Funland, which is so hard to describe that I think nothing I could try to do to explain it would do justice. The sort of place where I could describe the attributes of the place, you know, like skeletons in a water cooler, a wall of rowdy Ann and Andy dolls by the bar, okay, a stage in a warehouse where. A lot of the room, as I remember it, this is from several years ago by now, is crammed with like knickknacks and large couches and 
seemingly random things. A stage is quite high off the ground with a, a ring of movie theater seats around the stage. There's also like a pit in front of the stage for people to dance. But of course, this is a venue that doesn't really promote the shows. So I haven't really heard of shows needing the seats to be used at the same time as the pit, if you will. Yeah. Um, just for like capacity's sake. But that, that place is just like legendarily odd. Like it's it's so <laughs> so weird that I've had like musician friends where I'm like, we should play a show here sometime. It's so low key, we can do whatever we want. And they're like, no, I can't, I'm too afraid. <laughs> what else is there? My dear kindergarten teacher left teaching and opened a secondhand kids clothing store for a while. I think she's back in teaching now, but I played a show at that store. I played a show at a gallery that had Saddam Hussein's plates on display. Okay. Like kitchenware. Uh, let's see. Last summer, I was on tour with my dear friend Cameron Noller in Europe, and we played a large house in Tilt, Belgium, that was hosting a, a benefit concert for the purchase of land that we understood to be a park, but we're told over and over and over again, every single time we asked, that it's a forest. Like, yeah, you know, we're going to benefit this, you know, this concert, you know, are going to help buy a bit of a forest. And we were like, forest, like, like a park and they're like a forest. Like, you know, we're going to use it for like, and then the sort of things that, you know, you might do in a park and we're like, but like a park and they, they'd say a forest. Wow. Just over and over again. That's yeah. hilarious. Those all come to mind off, off the top, but I think the, the larger thread I mean to think of is just that um, I've played all sorts of shows at places like that and also at more proper quote-unquote venues um, and festivals, kind of about every scale you could imagine as far as I'm aware. That's crazy. That's the the first one I'm still trying to to imagine what this room looks like. That sounds like definitely the most unique room I've ever heard of. Well, so we'll move on to the second question. Sure. So since you are just a tour dog and on the road a lot. Aspiring tour dog. Yes. <laughs> well, so you've probably eaten a lot of bad sandwiches, I would assume. Is there a particularly bad sandwich that stands out to you? Hmm. Bad sandwich might be tough as far as relates to tour, but can I tell you an unrelated story about eating bad sandwiches? Child? Absolutely. That, that, that'll that be even better. Okay. Summer of 11th grade. I am with maybe a dozen other people, my synagogue's rising upperclassmen in the religious school. We're um, traveling from Houston to Israel via Amsterdam and Poland. We're in Poland for a week. Anyway, trip like this, you really need proper nourishment. What kind of nourishment did we have on this trip? Well, we had, for some reason, even though none of us, to my knowledge, really kept kosher or observed like the Jewish rules of kashrut on this trip, we were told to avoid the food in Poland because the food in Poland is like, unimaginably bad it's universally terrible you're not gonna like anything you have mm -hmm. is what we were told and so the solution was to fly in unrefrigerated egg salad and tuna sandwiches from israel every single day oh. for lunch oh. yeah so we had that every single day and you know a few days of that is bad enough one day is bad enough but to have that for a week to have that for an extended period of time is really really difficult and it makes you to the point where you think any kind of other food will be like a blessing of some sort, you know, regardless of your like religious relationships or experience or whatever, that some kind of other food can seem just so special that it has to be better, right? So maybe the last year or so of the trip, we haven't had lunch yet. And I look out, you know, and I see it. There it is. What is it? It's a food cart. And the food cart <laughs> has for sale hot dogs. And I'm like, fuck. Like, <laughs> 
It's too fucked up. <laughs> I can't do it. There's no way. Like, it's not going to be better than these awful unrefrigerated egg salad and tuna sandwiches. There's just no way. We're on a guided tour, and I'm lucky to be able to just like pop around on my own because I just I want to follow it on my own pace and not follow the group. And the teachers are kind enough to let me do this. And so you know, anyway, time we get out, pretty hungry. See the food cart. Think, oh no, like it's so, but it's so cheap. Yeah, but it can't be good. But it's so cheap. And, you know, so I'm, I'm really debating, like, oh man, like the the angel and devil on my shoulders are equally, you know, remorseful. They're like, I really wanted to have something other than these unrefrigerated eggs out to sandwiches. <laughs> but if you have this hot dog mashups, you're going to hell. And they say, well, you're not exactly going to heaven if you have another one of these sandwiches. And so, <laughs> what do I do? I get the hot dog, and it was, you know, like understandably, it was, you know, one of the worst meals I've ever had in my entire life. Like totally horrible, awful. But yep. was it? Even worse than unrefrigerated egg salad and tuna sandwiches? I still don't know. <laughs> That's incredible. And, you know, I think any kind of, like, sandwich I've had on tour, because, like, when I go on tour, I try to keep a list of, like, the really good places I go, bookstores or mm-hmm. nature spots or any any other off-the-beaten-path things, food sports restaurants are on the list, too. But the spots that are really memorably good or worth visiting or something. So bad food has to be really bad to registered in hindsight i think well, that, that i mean that really sounds like it set the bar pretty high as to what can be bad for you <laughs> i mean that's got trauma attached to it as well like religious trauma at that yes, as well yeah. so i mean that's that's a hard bear to beat like the sea store down the road or the bodega can't beat that that's pretty intense yeah i've had, I've had some pretty nice bodega sandwiches to be fair and like i had the gas station roller hot dogs and uh-huh. never never cracked good for you 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 built up a, a pretty large tolerance to that. Just you you had that one trauma and now you're like, no more, no more. I'm better than that now. <laughs> so well that's fantastic. Well, okay, so the last one and then we'll we'll jump into the conversation. Are you pro or against playing air guitar? I mean, as a as a virtuosic player yourself, are you are you a fan of playing the air guitar or not? Um I think like I think I'm more or less indifferent, honestly. Okay, that's surprising. I don't think I'm very good at playing air guitar, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you you wasted all your air guitar skill on playing the actual guitar. Is that what I'm hearing? I think it's just, it's like, you got to look at yourself in the mirror or something. Like when you practice. And that is... All right. So if it's, if it's a nice summer day, you're rolling yeah. down the road, you're on the highway, you're in the passenger seat, your buddy's blaring white snake from the stereo. You don't whip <laughs> out the air guitar and at least shred a little bit on it. Nah, I mean... The, the sorts of folks I know, I don't know many people who are into white snake like that. Well, you got to get yeah. better friends then, man. You got to have know, a couple friends that like white snake at least. Come on. <laughs> yeah, it might it might be like a Sunny Chirac thing, but white snake, I don't know. Okay, well, I mean that that'll work too. But whatever, I mean, that, so you gave me homework on a band to check out. I'm giving you homework to find better friends. So we're 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 walking away even here. <laughs> we're gonna have to jump into the conversation now. Sure. Okay, so you, you wrote this incredible article called The Labor of Love on touring as an independent musician. I've been aware of what it looks like. I mean, as somebody who's been to nearly a thousand concerts and seeing different bands and different settings and different venues, I'm aware of the hardships. I mean, and I love reading music biographies and things like that. So I'm aware of what it it looks like in those early days or just for most people. But this article is very enlightening in a lot of ways, and it puts a lot of reality to what most musicians are going through. And we'll talk about all of that. But the thing that I want to start with is the way you set up the article with this story is still fan- 
fantastic because you're talking about the defeat of the the show you played to walk out and see this child of a neo-Nazi yelling obscenities at a concert. Sympathizer, sympathizer. Sympathizer, sorry. Sorry, secondhand, so I can't necessarily... Okay. But, I mean, either way, it's such a really challenging setting. Like, I played a show in um, Columbus, Ohio with some friends. We'd organized a show well in advance. It was a Saturday night. We all had high hopes for it. Seemed like it would be a good turnout. And then after the show was already on the books, um, a local band had organized their own release show in town across the street. And there were um, a couple other folks on the bill. That's how this, you know, child ended up on the bill, um, which is bewildering as it was to see and like difficult to process, I suppose. Um, it, it seemed like the booking for that show was coming from a well-intentioned place. But, you know, this the show that I played, you know, six people there, maybe, mm. plus the folks who were helping out with the show. And then at this show, you know, the room was packed and there were a hundred something, probably more people at this show watching this six-year-old girl yell up some issues into a microphone. And it's just one of those moments that makes it makes you question like, oh man, what am I doing with my life? Like, <laughs> what could have possibly happened that you could even talk a child into performing in a bar it's such a dangerous setting it's such it's a a setting that children have like to my understanding relatively little business being in especially if they're performing on their own you know Mm -hmm. it was a really odd thing both to be there and then at that show to re-encounter somebody who i met at the show i just played you know, I told him I was touring, you know, without a car, you know, taking a bag and a guitar on the on bus and train and plane. And he said, oh, I wish I did that when I was your age. And of course, there's like not really anything I can say to that. And that, and that sort of seems like some of the crux of touring is that it can seem a lot more glamorous, logistically easier or something than it is. And I um, definitely don't feel like I had any kind of handle on what it means or entails until I started being able to tour on a more regular basis, which was even itself kind of irregular because I was a full-time student and I graduated into the pandemic in 2020. And before then, every tour I'd done it was on break from school. I I don't drive or have a car, uh, which is of course crucial context. For the first time I did like a solo tour of my own without a car, fall 2019, and that was a tour where I was like, I wonder if this is going to be possible to do this on my own. And if it is, then maybe I can keep digging my heels and not actually acquire a license by the standard means or find a way to get a car. Because that's like the, the, the main thing is like mm-hmm. the expense of having a car, the expense of renting a car on tour, whether you're paying for the upkeep of your own thing and the insurance and the gas and whatnot, or you're paying for just the sheer price of renting it for however long. Mm-hmm. It's just stuff that I like did not have any kind of income for. And now sort of as a result, you know, I've just organized my life without. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of why I was able to write that essay to begin with is because I just have a different experience from a lot of people because I'm really interested in the traveling without a car as much as I can. Or I should say traveling without owning a car as yeah. much as I can. But also as I've recently toured, Solo without a car and with um, my dear bandmates, Sam Wax, pedal steel guitar, Tower Damon drums, and hanging out. We've rented a minivan using the Turo car sharing app. Mm-hmm. And those have been fine, but also the overhead is so, so much lower if I travel without a car at mm-hmm. all. And it's really surprised me. You know, if, if I were to 
make more money on tour in a way that would really facilitate renting a car more with more ease and maybe that would be more possible but it's hard to imagine that being the case given that expenses of concert production seem to scale up pretty greatly and venues at larger scales seem interested in uh, functionally cheating artists out of their own money via like taking mm-hmm. cuts of merchandise sales the way I've been able to tour is, and continue to be able to tour has pretty much been motivated by and animated by employing my overhead as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm in a position where I can do that to a pretty extreme degree relative to other acts, but I also feel like it just might be something that people don't necessarily think they can attempt. That kind of hits on something that I've thought a lot about is there's this great deception of music that we can all do it. Like, with just enough practice, anyone can play the guitar and be virtuosic or with a decent voice can grab a microphone at karaoke. And so like, what's to stop them from getting on stage and singing really and truly to, to mean even to take a next step of any of that, there has to be a level of talent there. And I, I think there's been a great deception of music that like, just, just anybody can do it. Like anybody can do what you're doing when that's obviously incorrect. Honestly, I, th- I think I might see it differently. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm self-taught and did not really know for a while what sort of roadmap there might be for like, you know, instrumental guitar people who don't come from a certain idiom and don't, um, like meaning like jazz or classical backgrounds or whatever, mm-hmm. and don't work in the sort of more explicitly commercial avenues of folks like the Candy Rat Records types who, mm-hmm. you know, tap or use those sort of extended techniques as, to my mind, compositional gimmicks I don't know, like it doesn't necessarily take, you know, great musicianship in a technical sense to make music that is moving or compelling. Mm. I do feel though that like to your point, there's some maybe difficult to pin down quality of like the kinds of effort you make in music making that meaning in a sort of larger sense of like being an artist in the global sense of art, regardless of the medium we're working in, that can make it easy to inadvertently focus on things outside of the music first that I found kind of difficult to relate to when I was growing up and really wanting to be a working musician as, as a quote-unquote artist was the, the, the thought of like the kind of stagecraft and performative elements outside of musical elements that it might entail cost- costumes or outfits or assuming certain characters or something like that. At the time, you know, I just didn't really have a way to relate to that because I thought, well, like, at this point in my life, I'm kind of shy and I don't really feel comfortable being the center of attention very often. That's part of why instrumental guitar music has been the thing I've been doing because you don't have to sing. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you can actually just get on stage as yourself and do your thing as yourself and you can get get off and you can still be yourself and you don't have to use a persona or a different name or anything. So I feel like sense of deception is maybe not so much like, oh, it is not possible for everybody to be a musician or to bear out some sort of dream or what have you, as much as it is, oh, it's not possible for everybody to do these things, not because there's a certain level of talent you necessarily need to hit before you can arrive at those points on your own, but that a lot of the information that you might need to be able to start like pursuing those things in whatever way is, is cake. Mm. No. Yeah. I think you make a great point. And as you were speaking, I was like, no, you are right. Like I I'm, I'm wrong. I, 
you know, because I think about like punk rock and how much of that is just poor musicianship to some degree, but you know, it captures a spirit in it. And and I think I was coming more from the place of like hearing your virtuosic skills on the guitar and then having some guy come up to you and say, Hey, I wish I had done that. It's like, well, you also worked really, really hard to get where you are as far as your skills on the guitar. For a long time, I had this idealization in my mind that like every musician was this larger than life, grandeur person like Elvis or Prince or somebody like that. Oh, yeah. But the reality of the situation is, and, I, and I'm fully contradicting the question I just asked you, is most of the musicians that are on the scene today are, are very much just regular, real working people. This is their job to play music, is what I'm seeing. Totally, totally. You know, because I, I think about music as an art, and, you know, so much of what you want to do is to produce the art. But in reality, you're probably spending more time on the business than you are creating art. Yeah, if you have the sort where you like are able to work with booking agents and managers, and legal teams, and business managers, and things, and you're like ping ponging all these different things around between all these different people, and you don't necessarily have the ability to do stuff just because you want to, you got to approve it with all these different people. This is, of course, you know, me assuming the process. I don't know how it works because I don't work mm -hmm. with those people at the moment. On the flip side, you know, if you're doing it all on your own, you could well have the chance to do like, whatever you want to do and, and, and to say no to anything mm -hmm. you don't want to do and then to then do the work of pitching and soliciting oneself. Have you ever thought of just quote unquote, selling out and joining a band or finding a role in a, you know, performing backup for a larger musician or anything like, has that in the lows of the touring hardships that you describe in your article, has that thought ever crossed your mind? I uh, not really. Um, I think, I think in part because I wouldn't know how to go about asking for that kind of thing. Mm. But I think also because, um, I don't know, it's just not at the forefront. And for me, that just hasn't, felt like some like a thing to really pursue in a serious way although of course i'm definitely interested you know if, you, mm -hmm. if anybody is ever like hey you, know, you, you can play guitar with me and my band we're going to go on tour for this amount of time mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. honestly i think kind of the ideal thing that would be open for a larger band then hop on and play guitar with them that's yeah that's a really cool way to think about it i mean so how do you manage that anxiety juggling everything that you're doing as well as you know performing i think i should say I'm, I'm not totally independent you know i've been able to work with record labels and with pr people and in europe with people who are properly or functionally booking agents and that's definitely not the, quite the same for me as like being totally 100 independent which people definitely do as well but mm -hmm. i've actually been thinking about it over the last week or so because I've been kind of burnt out doing it all on my own, specifically the booking side of things, you know, the mm -hmm. booking US tours and also trying to, and I really don't like using this word, strategize bookings and develop my career, so to speak. I find pretty difficult because I have, you know, friends with agents who will be able to talk with other agents about pitching artists here and there for support slots on tour. And that feels like exactly the kind of thing I should be doing for myself right now, which I'd like to be doing. But I don't know how to do it on my own. And I've, I've, I've been making the attempts, you know, taking baby steps and writing managers a few times a week or something and being like, hey, like, mm -hmm. this is who I am. I'm available to do support tours at these times of the year. If you're around, let me know, I'm, et cetera, et cetera. And I know that for whatever reason, that sort of thing might not line up. 
you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to reverse engineer the process, of, which is the source of a lot of the stress I have in general, I think. And of course, there's always so much you can do that on your own. That's sort of the spot I've been lately is not quite knowing how do I do that on my own when I'm, you know, touring behind records that have already come out, when the um, nature of social media events over the last few years has changed so dramatically, where Facebook events are sort of unreliable metrics of attendance, where mm. posting on Instagram or Instagram story is really like only one possible avenue of attempting to promote a show and when all the different aspects of promotion is so decentralized and scattered across Spotify and other streaming services and Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or website or email list, record labels doing the same thing, distribution companies, if you have the chance to snag those for like distributing records, letting record stores know about such things. And I feel like that has got to be a stressor and a struggle, you know, for folks in general. Yeah. I don't know. I think as far as managing the, those anxieties, you know, I think I've been pretty reticent to ask people for help. Thinking about it over the last week with the help of, help of friends and such, they're like, okay, actually, maybe you're not necessarily imposing yourself completely if you just ask somebody who has been in it for longer and has these resources and knows to some degree what the, what it's about from their experience. Like, hey, like, how did this happen for you? Like, what would you recommend for me? Yeah, so I guess, I guess the, the, the shorter answer entails you know in some way being part of a community because that's definitely something that's helped my life that sense either way of being part of something larger than yourself i think is a large part of it i think is also sort of like a really short answer to your question like managing those anxieties that's that's incredible i appreciate the depth that you went in there when i was researching you and just preparing for this conversation i I stumbled on a review about your self-titled album and and it talks about how where you can go from there is anywhere. And they were talking about how you and your peers are so prolific in what you produce. Uh, it kind of goes beyond the standard album cycle for most artists. Sure. And, and so the thing for me is when I hear you talk about all this stuff and when I hear just the levels of just trudge that you have to go through, how do you stay inspired? How do you maintain that inspiration that like they're talking about in that article? I mean, cause it is, it is palpable when I listen to your music. It is palpable that you are a very inspired person. So how do you find that? I, th- I think part of it is that I'm pretty shameless about asking people who I think are cool if they want to try and do things with me. <laughs> the record that my dear friend Cameron Noller and I got to release a couple of years ago came out in 2021. It happened pretty much because I was just like, over, you know, periodically, over and over again, like, dude, We'd make such a good record together. I know it doesn't make sense to you, but we got to we gotta try. He was like, ah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And then it, it worked, you know? And hopefully we'll be able to do more of those at some point in the future, however however hazy or near it might be. But um, with other folks too, just like asking people like, hey, I think this would be really cool. Would you be down to try this sometime? For whatever reason, it's just something I've always found pretty easy to do because like the worst thing that somebody can do is like not reply to an email. Like it's not like anybody's gonna yeah. say like, fuck you you're a dirtbag like i don't want to play with a <laughs> shitty guitar music or whatever like people I, I was so worried about people responding like that when i was first starting to write people in that way and i think i've done it enough times that i kind of know that if that kind of thing does ever happen it's like such an exceptional circumstance you know part of it i think is just you know suggesting to people hey we should try this we should do this and then like not minding like being a bit of a pill sometimes or coming off maybe as being a bit of a pill for whatever sort of things i can do on guitar there's so many other things i just can't do at all like i am 
self-taught, which means I'm not, of course I'm not trained in jazz. So I don't know a lick of like how to do any sort of jazz guitar thing. I don't know. I mean, I can't, I still can't really shred, like using a pick really fast kind of way. My left hand is pretty, mm-hmm. pretty slow sometimes, if I'm, especially if I'm playing acoustic guitar. It's just hard to do a lot of stuff, which is, which is fine because it should be, but also being aware of those kinds of limitations, but also the kinds of things that like interest me at a certain point and how I can um, define, like to find ways to adapt to what I can do anyway. And just sort of expanding that skill to encompass arrangements of music or to encompass sharing music with other people as arrangements or to find ways to accommodate, like with the record that came out last year on Three Oak, for example, having a general sense of what I wanted people to play and very occasionally having specific notes or rhythms in mind, but rarely having that. And even if I did, not wanting to have them play in a way that didn't feel like themselves, you know, it didn't feel like whatever they would do for mm-hmm. the song as you were hearing at that point. I don't know. It's the sort of thing that to me makes a lot of sense, but yeah. I also, you know, like I struggled to hear parts in my head all the time to their full realization in part because the music can often seem pretty modular and also because um if i can hear parts a lot of the time i want to resist the urge to dictate them as much as i can i have have other friends who are really clearly able to visualize or audiate like the whole of a song as they're working on it which i maybe could do in some ways but as far as like regards to solo music i don't think that at the moment it's happened that way for whatever reason that's fascinating so as we kind of start to wrap up my last question is kind of around the last sentence of your article or your essay that you wrote you ended on an incredibly bittersweet note and it's the concept of dying on the road essentially it's to quote the rigors of the endeavor that you love will expedite your demise so my question is would you trade it all for something else for a more success would you trade what you're doing to do some other path. I mean, it seems like you're pretty dedicated and find a lot of fulfillment in what you do. Yeah. Um, I think the short answer is no, you know, mm. I think also though, um, I don't know, you know, my roommates and I talk about this a bit because they're also serious working musicians in their own ways. And at some point we entertained the idea, one of us of working a corporate job mm-hmm. in some fashion. And for me, the answer is always been no. At the same time, I have, you know, remote work, that I'm able to do on tour. I'm, I'm a record label manager and it's really fortunate work. It's a really ideal situation for the circumstance I'm in where um, I'm both interested in touring as much as I can safely. And also because I want to you know, maintain my health, re-COVID and other illnesses as much as I can from the road or from my work. I want to work remotely as much as I can mm-hmm. and the work, you know, being remote facilitates that. I don't know. I mean, I guess that question kind of gets another thought I've had um, which I'm sure plenty of other people have had too, just like about the extent to which like you're not a real quote unquote artist if in whatever sense, you know, music or writing or whatever. Are you like a real artist if you don't make a living off of it? Mm. And um I mean I, I I think I know the answer. I think even though I in my brain think the answer is of course you're a real artist if you don't mm-hmm. do it full time or whatever, like in a strict sense. You know, part of that, of course, is just my own shit that I got to work through. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's sets that I've thought about and talked about with other folks at times, you know, because older folks haven't gone to grad school at times when going to grad school guaranteed a lot of things that it doesn't now. Mm-hmm. And like generally it did not like immiserate people in the way that it is very possible of doing now. 
suggesting, oh, like, what if you go to grad school as a plan B? And, and my, my thinking was like, well, it's not really a plan B. It's kind of a plan A. It's kind of like a different plan entirely because of all the, the things it entails, the rigors you have to go through. I mean, you know, for all the, the stress or whatever that I can feel on a given day, you know, the, the, the slog, the trudges, you said, it's still so much easier than, you know, doing all this on my own booking-wise and such when I was a full-time student. I think the busiest I'd ever felt in my life was when I was first full-time student doing press for my first record on my own while managing a full course load. And then also um, about half a year later, at the start of 2020, before the pandemic had begun and lockdown had begun, when I was working on my BA thesis, juggling a full course load, and I was also doing work-study work and such, and radio DJ throughout my entire college career and such, and music director for the station the past three years of my college career, doing all those things, also trying to book three months of touring, mm. function, more or less three months of touring at once. You know, I, The idea was I would have gone around the East Coast without a car for a month, and then taken a couple of weeks off, and then gone to Europe for about a month, and then taken a couple of weeks off, and then done some sort of West Coast leg, and then gone home, and then thought, okay, like, what happens next? What do I do? Do I keep doing this? Do I... To think like, how can I manage, you know, being on tour for a long part of the year? And I really, really wanted to do that. And I was really, really heartbroken when it, when it just didn't happen at all. And it became totally impossible. And um, of course, I was booking the Europe stuff on my own too, which booking a few shows for the Cameron tour, the tour with my friend Cameron last summer, um, before we had the chance to start working with the proper booking agent in a way, had been trying for six months to book shows for this tour. And in those six months, nailed down three and then one of them didn't happen mm. this is like for a month-long tour because if you're not getting like ten thousand quid a gig you know you just need to have more shows to balance out the expenses mm-hmm. and such um but i mean i was reading an interview with roger daltrey the other day of course the lead singer the who talking about with usa today yeah we're, we're probably never going to go to the u.s again for a tour and you know usa today was like but why you know you're so hot and charming and so septuagenarian Everybody would love to see you one last time before you die. And he was like, well, like, that's the thing. It's like, you know, if we do like 12 shows and arenas touring around the entire country, the overall expenses of this tour is 600K to a million dollars. And we won't start making that money back until show seven or eight. And we could get COVID the first night and be totally fucked. And we're not going to be able to get insured. Mm. And so just because of that, from a sheer cost perspective, we can't make it make sense at all. And the thought of somebody as larger than life, to your point earlier about mm-hmm. that, you know, someone as larger than life as him saying stuff like that, you know, really amplifies the thought of the music industry and all these different facets being variously unsustainable you know, at large, and I think it's part of why I've been doing it. I've been doing it is because those things I find really sustainable. I've been able to do like eight hour bus ride from DC to Pittsburgh and hop off the bus from Fresh as a Daisy. This is still better than going to an office five days, yeah. eight hours a day. From my experience, I've been able to work in office settings and no matter how cool the office setting is, hated it, hated the setting specifically, just at large. There's all this time in the day that, you know, I'm theoretically dedicating to work and I know that nobody and this office is really doing work for eight hours a day because I see how when I walk into the room of my amazing boss and ask them a question, they're like switching their, lap, they're switching their computer window back to their work thing from like shopping for books on Amazon or whatever it is yeah. 
And um, there's a, a broken thing there too, having all that stability and in possibility of income and whatnot, even though it seems fairly likely that that might be hard to come by in a lot of fields anyway, um, that basically if you're not in a field that's like serving the undoing of the world in some way, you're not going to be able to have that kind of thing necessarily in your life unless you find ways to work around your particular situation. And, and, and that's driving the same sense of like, yeah, it provides all these support. It gives us you buy a flat screen TV and a nice car and another car for your partner. And you get to do all these things. Maybe you're raising a family, maybe you're not. But what if you wake up in the morning and you don't want to do it? What if you get up in the morning and you don't want to do the thing that you need to do because you have these other obligations or even not just because you have these other obligations, but because it's like the thing that you're doing rather than like finding a way to organize a life around whatever sort of things animate you outside of that. Like, you know, I have a lot of friends in music who come from some kind of special wealth in some way that I don't have. I, you know, I grew up, you know, fairly, you know, comfortably, which is a pretty lucky thing. You know, I was able to go on vacations with my parents and mm-hmm. so on and so forth and to go to college at free. And those are all, you know, huge, huge boons, of course. I'm not without privilege, especially as a cis white guy. But also, you know, I don't have the kind of money that could do the sort of things that other friends are really easily able to do. Like the guitars I have, for example, I got them either for just cheap or free. The sheer overhead of touring without a car, as crazy as it still seems sometimes, that oddly enough, has animated the ability to do it to begin with. Mm. And um, that seems like kind of the most important thing is like what what's going to sustain it, what's going to make it possible to keep doing it. You know, for me, that's looked like, like, like working from it as much as I can rather than otherwise. It's just one way in which, like for me, the thought hasn't been like so much, oh, I should try to find things that will sustain me and then I can reconsider the musical and creative pursuits afterwards, it's like, okay, like, what do I need to do after I like, focus on these pursuits in order to make their pursuit like the main focus of like my quote unquote work as much as possible? I don't know. That's, that's the kind of thing I think is possible, not necessarily at the same rate or at the same time for everybody, but I feel like that general thing, just through trusting that it's possible, it becomes possible, you know? Mm. You know, like that LARB essay paid a hundred bucks and I was thrilled because they did not change the way I wrote it. They cut a few hundred words. They basically took it as it was. And I was really surprised by that. They let me do it on my terms as much as they could. And they made it better what they suggested. That was really exciting to get to publish it with them, say, versus to get to publish it in a larger outlet that for that particular piece would really gut it and clean it out of the stuff that made it its own thing. Yeah. You know, that, that would not have been what I would have wanted for that kind of thing. Hmm. Yeah. You know, the short answer is no. <laughs> well, no, that's great. Well, that's, I mean, it's, it really is a, an inspirational story to pursue our dreams and oh, to, to do the things that we love to do. And, but yeah. you know, Eli, I do, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for your art and, your your dedication to your art more than anything else as well but i really appreciate you sharing today and i appreciate you opening up for us i i think it's maybe a thought that like the the trudge if you will must present itself in different ways i'm lance ingram and this is yesterday's concert thanks for listening to another episode of my show for more live music podcasting check out our other show jam journals 
If you're feeling kind, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And check us out on all the social media platforms. Email us at info at yesterdaysconcert.com or visit our website, yesterdaysconcert.com. So until next time, give us a subscribe, tell your friends, and most importantly, take care of your shoes. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.